Hey, hello, everyone. This podcast is being brought to you today from the Center for Advanced Medicine, just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Please visit them at tcfam.com. That's tcfam.com. Dr. Stigall, thank you for being here in the studio with us today. I have been looking forward to this opportunity like you cannot believe. Me too, Robert. Thank you for having me. Dr. Stigall, for those that don't know who you are, um, please describe your your background How from the very beginning, how you ended up getting into medicine, how you became an integrative oncologist, who were your mentors? Who did you look up to? Uh, so many times a patient sees a doctor and they detach them from being a real human being, if right. you know what I mean, right. right? Absolutely. So I think it's really important for people to understand who Dr. Stagall is. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, my story really starts when I was born. I was, uh, I was born almost three months prematurely. Um, I obviously don't remember that, but uh, I was always told as I grew up that uh, I was a preemie. Uh, and at that time, uh, I weighed one pound and 14 ounces. And at that time, um, it was about a 50-50 chance of survival. So I was always told as I grew up uh, you know, that I was meant for something big and something special. So um, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was a kid, obviously, with my life. I wasn't one of those kids that grew up and said, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a police officer. I didn't know. Um, but I always remembered it was something important. Um, and then when I was five years old, my grandmother was diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer. And she was really the first relative I remember who had any sort of, of health issue, um, certainly cancer. And so um, I remember uh, when she was diagnosed, my mom telling me, you know, that, uh, that she had a, a tumor, which is like a growth, and that she would be having to undergo some pretty nasty treatments, some chemotherapy, radiation, things like that, and that that was going to affect the way grandma felt and in the way she looked. And so she, um, uh, you know, she prepared me that grandma was going to lose some weight, lose her hair, um, you know, probably not be herself. And, and that was true. And, and I remember, I was like to tell this story, but I remember when my mom took my grandma to buy a wig, um, she came home and had a wig for me too. And it was a clown wig. And so uh, I still have that clown wig, actually. I, wow. <laughs> I, uh, I actually uh, pulled it out the other day to look at it. So um, I've saved it all these years, but um, I thought that was just kind of a sweet thing mm-hmm. um, just to let me get a wig just like grandma got. So, um, but, but of course, as grandma went through treatments, um, you know, she just declined, um, you know, and she lost a lot of weight, lost her hair, didn't feel good, you know, nauseated, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, she ultimately passed away. And so I, I just vividly remember um, how that took what was otherwise a really happy, healthy, uh, seemingly healthy woman and, uh, who was very positive and upbeat. Um, it, it, it wrecked her body, but it also just kind of crushed her spirit. And I remember being keenly aware of that, even at five years old, that, that grandma's different. And, um, I, that really made an impression on me. And then of course, growing up, um, didn't really think much more about it, but then, uh, you know, I, I really felt called toward medicine when I was in college. So I, again, wasn't exactly sure where, where life was going to take me. Uh, I was actually about to graduate with a business degree. And uh, I was just sort of praying about next steps. And um, I thought business would be a good major just for whatever I did in life. Mm-hmm. And uh, God just put it on my heart to be a doctor. Um, and that was not something I had really planned on. Um, my mom was a doctor. Um, she was an integrative uh, family doctor. And so I, I was obviously exposed to that in a positive way. But going to medicine myself was just not something I had thought about. But, um, but I just really felt called to that and kept praying about that. And um, 
and I just felt that was the right thing to do. So obviously I had to go back and take a whole bunch of classes I didn't get. A lot of science courses, organic chemistry and biology and physics and all those things. But um, I did that and, um, and really just proceeded down the path of becoming a doctor. So for those who are listening who don't know, there's a, there's a lot of steps. There's, there's courses. There's um, the MCAT test, which is a big test you have to take to get into medical school. Um, and then I actually decided to do a, a master's degree in physiology. So that, um, I thought was going to be important for me, just not having a science background as much to do that. So my program was at Georgetown university and it was unique because they had a grant from the NIH to study alternative medicine. So that was right up my alley. Cause I knew I wanted to go to medicine, but also had this appreciation for various alternative therapies. And so the program was very science-based in that we, we talked about physiology and biochemistry and all those things. But we also had courses in various alternative therapies, herbs, supplements, um, mindfulness, all kinds of different therapies. And we were trained to examine those from a scientific perspective. So we were, we were trained specifically on how to evaluate the literature. And as I went into medical school and my, my further training, I realized how important that is. Because you have to be able to look at a study and see, is it a good study? Um, who funded this study? Um, was it a good population of patients? Was it even done on people or was it done on animals? Uh, was it done in the lab? There's a lot of things to have to think about in terms of research. And so I really got a great foundation in how do we evaluate research and decide if we think this is going to be good or not. Um, little did I know how important that would be for me in integrative oncology, because as I go through my uh, training to medical school, residency, fellowship, um, again, I knew I wanted to incorporate integrative, but there's not a blueprint for that. There's not a standardized curriculum for integrative oncology. And so I had to sort of create it as I went and uh, to be able to look at the, the science for various things and decide uh, whether they're worthy or not um, has been a really great skill to have. It's fantastic. Yeah. What is your, your grandmother's name? Uh, her name was Addie Lee. She, Addie Lee. Yep, she's from here in the South. So okay. uh, Addie Lee was her name. So yeah. And your mother's name? My mom is uh, Susan Stegall. Okay. Yeah. Great. I just want to honor them. Yeah. Right? Thank you. Such a, such thank an influence you. right yeah. in your life in those early years. Yeah. And my mom, of course, uh, she passed away a few years ago, but she was just an incredible influence on my life. Um, yeah. yeah. That's fantastic to hear. Well, I'm certain that they are proud of you. Thank you. You know, I hope so. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You mentioned that it was Georgetown you were at, mm -hmm. correct? Or graduate school. Yeah. That there was a grant, I think some, mm -hmm. some money from for, the NIH yeah. for, for integrative. Mm-hmm. Complementary medicine. We'll it was. It. Yeah, they sponsored this graduate program specifically in physiology to study certain complementary and alternative medicine therapies. And you said you had that, that grabbed your interest. It sounded like you already had an interest. I did. Where did that come from? Where did at that age? I, I mean, I'm just thinking most young people are not yeah. thinking that way, right? Of mm -hmm. course, you're in medical right. school, but right. where did that come from? All right. That was my mom's influence. Um, okay. You know, I grew up with integrative medicine in my house. So my mom had me taking supplements way before they were popular. My friends always thought it was so weird. Like, why are you taking pills and stuff? You know, okay. but I knew about that. I knew about supplementation, good nutrition. Um, I was a health nut in terms of nutrition way before, again, most people were talking about it. Um, just the importance of basic lifestyle things, exercise, you know, hydration, mm. sleep. I, I really grew up with all that. Mm. And then I saw my mom um, just have such success with patients with various health issues. Um, and of course, she she treated, you know, birth to death, a whole lifespan. So she had little babies and toddlers. She had, you know, teenagers, adults, uh, elderly. She really saw the whole spectrum of ages. Um, and just hearing about her 
um, successes with patients using various integrative wow. therapies was just a huge influence. And I thought mm-hmm. I have to incorporate this. I mean, I want to, I have to, mm-hmm. um, to really mm-hmm. help people. Well, and she was a medical doctor mm-hmm. also. Yep. You know, normally when we, when we hear a medical doctor, we just think medicines, but right. here you are, you're growing up in a household where your mother, who's a medical doctor, is actually using supplementation. She's giving it to you. She's yep. saying, hey, Jonathan, here's what you need right. to <laughs> Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And uh, actually reaching for those things before she would reach for a medication. Um, so I actually had that approach as well of, you know, maybe there are some natural things you can try for a certain ailment. And then if that doesn't work, we could always try a medication later. So it was, it obviously depended on the condition, um, but, but it wasn't reach for the pharmaceutical. And if that doesn't work, try something more natural. It was, let's try something natural. If you think it's going to work well, then we'll go to something pharmaceutical if it doesn't. So that was always sort of my, my thought process. Wow. Now for those watching um, this right now or listening to it, why doesn't that happen on a regular basis when I go to a doctor appointment? Like a conventional medical doctor. Um, I think it's training. I think, you know, as I went through medical school, my mom hit on it one time. She said, you're having to flip your brain in a way as to learn everything you need to for medical school, because it's, it's not the same way of thinking. Um, it's very, you know, disease driven, symptom driven. Um, it's not as much about how that disease is affecting that patient. And I think there's a subtle, it's a subtle difference, but it's a big difference. If we think about, are we treating a disease or are we treating a patient who has a disease? And so when we look at it from a, a, a patient centric approach like that, um, I think it totally changes our paradigm. And so, um, you know, in, in, in my medical training was outstanding. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, I have a huge appreciation for Western medicine. I use it every day, but it leaves out a lot. And I think when we talk about what we're trained in, we're just trained in basically what the conventional medical model um, uses and what insurance approves. And so I think that really limits the toolbox when we're talking about uh, a spectrum of, of therapies to choose from for patients because it leaves out a whole lot of stuff that does have some good science behind it. It's just not part of that standard of care. And so doctors aren't taught about it. And then you, you to, to not to get too much off on a tangent, but the other problem is doctors just don't have as much time as, as they would like with patients in general mm-hmm. under that normal conventional medical model. And so not only do they not have the training in a lot of these other therapies, but they also don't have the time or interest to really go learn more about them either and to incorporate them. So it's a, it's a multifactorial problem, but, but it's, uh, it's, it's out there. And I think unless you have a doctor who's willing to learn some of these things on his or her own and, and really step outside the box, it's just not, they're not going to know anything about it. Would it be fair to say that when a a young doctor's coming out of medical school and he's a conventional doctor mm-hmm. taking medical insurance, you know, for payments, right. et cetera, versus like yourself, because you have a private practice, you're not, you don't take medical insurance. Correct. Okay. So is it fair to say that the doctor like yourself that's not taking medical insurance versus the one in a conventional practice that is, that that contributes to having less time to continue to do further research? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, even for oncology, the average visit length is about 17 minutes. Now, can you imagine you're going in and maybe maybe the visit is a little bit longer when you're seeing that doctor for the first time. Maybe it's a little bit longer to talk about your diagnosis and treatments. But even imagine going through treatment. That's a pretty fast visit, 17 minutes. You're barely able to say hello and how you're feeling that day and 
answer a few questions and that 17 minutes is going to be up, especially if they're reviewing any sort of test results or anything like that. So um, I think that's a problem because, because doctors just aren't able to get the information that they need. I mean, one of the, one of the things I learned early on in medical school was if you talk to the patient, they'll tell you, they'll tell you their problem. They'll tell you, they want to tell you. And we're trained to listen. We're trained to um, ask questions and then be quiet and listen. But then if you look at the research, doctors usually cut patients off after about eight seconds. So they ask you a question and then let the patient talk and then they interrupt them. And that's just not effective healthcare, as you know. And is that just happening because I got to get to the next patient? Mm -hmm. I think that's a lot of it. Okay. There's a lot of it. And I I think there's also an arrogance to, I know what the problem is. I don't need to hear anymore. I mean, I think it's both, but I think it's largely just because doctors know they're seeing 30, 40, 60 patients that day and they need to get on to the next one. When you consult with a patient, Dr. Stegall, on average, how long is that consultation? Uh, our first consultation is usually at least an hour, uh, hour and a half, sometimes even two hours. We, we spend a lot of time. Wow. Um, and then, you know, even even for follow-up visits, uh, it's at least 30 minutes, um, usually 30 to 45. It's fantastic. Yeah, especially when you have a health crisis, that's what I would expect. I'd want to sit with right. my doctor for an hour. Right. <laughs> I'm in a health crisis. Right. I, got a, I got a cancer diagnosis here, right? right. Absolutely. Um, that's fantastic to hear. So, I'm glad that we're, we're bringing this up because every viewer listening to this needs to know that someone like a Dr. Stigal who has a private practice is not taking medical insurance for payments, has really the advantage to continue sure. to do research, spend more time with mm-hmm. the patient, which ultimately translates into a better quality of care for the patient. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up because I think a lot of patients here that were not contracted with insurance and they, they say, oh, well you know, why not? That's not very nice of you. Why wouldn't you take mm. insurance? And it's, and it's not because we don't want to, it's number one, because insurance doesn't cover a lot of these integrative therapies. Um, and then number two, like you said, we do want to spend more time with our patients. We don't want to be told by the insurance company, you can only bill for 10 minutes with this patient, or 15 minutes. And that's how insurance companies do it. They, they say we bill for X, Y, and Z. And if you do that and the insurance covers that, that's great. But if you do anything outside of that, then you don't get paid. So it's a really broken system because it's not about the patient. It's really not. It's about what insurance companies want to pay for. Yeah. I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but as far as I'm concerned, that's an immoral system. I mean, health is sacred. So, uh, and the, and the patient doctor relationship is sacred as far as I'm concerned, but you cannot develop a a level of intimacy with your doctor in eight minutes, not over health crisis. When, when you were in medical school, what was your biggest aha moment during medical school during that time? Well, you know, during that time, I was, again, sort of figuring out what specialty, what what area, because you don't have to choose that up front. You, know, you choose that by the time you're graduating, you kind of mm-hmm. choose, okay, here's here's a specialty I want to do. And I was just really drawn to cancer patients. So I would, I would go back after my work was done and I would just go visit with them, you know, and it was really, it was really powerful when, the day I realized that I wasn't really able to help them much from a medical perspective. I mean, I had enough knowledge to know how to do the basics, but... I knew for most of those patients, I was not going to get rid of their cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was able to at least be there for them just as someone who cared, mm-hmm. someone who would listen, someone in a white coat, uh, even though it was a short medical student, white coat, not a long attending physician, mm-hmm. white coat, mm-hmm. um, still just someone on the medical team who could listen to them, would, would care for them, would, would get them a glass of water if they needed it or mm-hmm. whatever they needed. And so that was really my big aha moment. And as, as I went through more training and obviously became a physician and started managing patients myself, I still felt the same way. In medical school, I thought it was because I wasn't a doctor yet and because Mm -hmm. I was still learning. 
And once I had learned what they wanted me to learn, I still felt like I couldn't really help them. And that was one of my, okay, integrative oncology is, is where the answer has to be. Hmm. How much of that was your grandmother? Probably a lot more than I've thought about. Probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. More than I've realized. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Okay. So when you finish medical school, you've, you've made up your mind, you're going to be an integrative oncologist. Colleges from the very beginning is that is that, I mean is that how you started from I mean from get go yeah I was I was drawn to cancer I didn't really know if I want to do that for sure yet I mean mm-hmm. I, I initially just chose internal medicine because that's sort of a good base you could you can stay in primary care or that's also the required step if you want to subspecialize so if you want to do oncology cardiology critical care whatever sort of specialty you do internal medicine first so mm-hmm. I started with internal medicine residency and then. While I was in internal medicine residency, I, I realized that that I really felt called toward cancer specifically. Got it. Okay. Now, one of the things that has always struck me about Dr. Stegall is that I find you to be a researcher. Mm-hmm. You always seem to be dedicating time to looking at what is up and coming in the cancer field, right? What do I need to evaluate? Is there something up and coming that people should know? Or is there something that's intriguing you right now where you think there may be some significant hope here with this modality? Is there anything like that on the horizon? Um, Well, there's a lot of stuff. I don't know how long you want me to to talk on this, but Mm -hmm. um, to to take a step back for a second, you know, we always talk about the cure for cancer, right? We've Mm -hmm. been looking for it for decades, you know, going back to President Nixon, you know, declared war on cancer and Mm -hmm. We're going to develop, you know, devote all this research to cancer. You know, we've spent billions of dollars and we haven't found a cure. And I think the reason for that is not because we're looking in the wrong place, but because it's not going to be one thing. There is not probably going to be one medicine we give to cure cancer. It's probably going to be a cocktail of things. It's going to be a combination. So in thinking of it like that, um, yes, there are some things I'm excited about. So, uh, you know, we'll talk about chemotherapy later, I believe, but, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm still excited about chemotherapy. It does a lot. It's mm-hmm. a powerful tool. But aside from that, I think, you know, immunotherapy is a really exciting um, field. We're learning about how to better harness the immune system so that it sees cancer better and fights it better. Um, there's a lot of research with that. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more good things coming from, from all the genetic research that's been going on lately, too. I mean, we, we mapped the human genome uh, a couple decades ago, but, but we don't know what a lot of those mutations mean. But what we're finding is that we may be able to soon go in and and target some of those mutations and repair them. And that's not going to be anything wow. we hear about in the next year or two. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. soon in terms of in the next 10, 20 years, we may be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that has obviously some potential pros and cons associated with it. But to be able to truly affect cancer on the genetic level um, is something that excites a lot of sort of mainline cancer researchers. Mm-hmm. In terms of more supportive therapies, uh, there continues to be more and more good data on nutrition, how important that is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we, we find most of the research uh, leading us toward, you know, more plant-based diet, more, you know, obviously a concentration of fruits, vegetables, mm-hmm. you know, beans, grains. Um, as And then, you know, of course, we can debate over how much, animal protein to add in there or mm-hmm. things like that. But, but if, if plants are sort of the foundation, um, the bulk, if not all of the diet, then I think that that's really going to be, um, strongly anti-cancer. And then there's even some, some good data on the importance of 
um, when we eat. So it's not just what we eat, but when we eat. And so we're talking about things like fasting. You know, there's a lot of good research coming out now on um, intentionally not eating for a certain period of time, whether that's part of a day or even several days straight, um, and all the things that that um, all the, all the all the good effects that that provides in the body. So so I'm excited about a lot of it. It really depends on which area uh, we're talking about. And all these things that you just mentioned, are they things that you're currently integrating with your patients right now at the Center for Advanced Medicine? Uh, yes. Other than the, obviously the genetic uh, mm-hmm. alterations, mm-hmm. that's, that's way down the road. But, um, but yes, I mean, I believe in a truly integrative approach where we're, we're really taking the best of modern medicine, you know, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, uh, surgery, but, but, but integrating that with a lot of good natural and alternative therapies as well. That that's really to me where the magic happens because mm-hmm. we have a bigger toolbox that way. We're not limiting mm-hmm. ourselves mm-hmm. like a conventional oncologist or even someone who's strictly alternative in their approach. They're, they're missing a lot of other tools they could be using. Okay. Got it. Now I know you're an author. You have a book mm-hmm. called Cancer Secrets I do. and you also, you have your own podcast, right? Mm-hmm. You have your own yep. website dedicated to this, which is fantastic. It answers so many frequently asked questions for patients. So thank you for investing the oh, time sure. in that. Really appreciate that. Let's talk about chemotherapy because mm-hmm. when patients hear I, you have cancer, or you got cancer, uh, immediately treatments kicks into their mind. And that's going to be chemo or radiation, maybe a surgery. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the story about your grandmother mm-hmm. and how your your own mother prepared you for the physical changes that were going to take place. And they did take place. Mm-hmm. And this is the image that we all have in our minds about right. chemotherapy. It, it's like, I think for most of us, we think this is a bomb mm-hmm. that's going to get dropped on me. Please explain to our viewers why... We don't need to be afraid of it mm-hmm. in that kind of way. Give us a history of chemotherapy. Uh, explain to us how you leverage this tool. Because mm-hmm. I think you mentioned in your, your, your book, hey, we got, we got a toolbox here. Mm-hmm. And this is a major tool that shouldn't necessarily be abandoned but used differently. Right. Right. So the history of chemotherapy is is – you know, decades old. I mean, it goes back to the 1950s um, when chemo was first used. There was a, a certain type of uh, pediatric um, cancer, uh, I believe it was a lymphoma, that that they found uh, actually responded well to a derivative of mustard gas. And so the joke is that chemotherapy is mustard gas. But obviously, mm-hmm. it's evolved a lot since then. But mm-hmm. um, but they they obviously had to play with the dosing and the frequency and everything with that regimen. But but the approach at that time was these are these are kids who have a, a horrible diagnosis. Let's give them as much of this drug as they can stand because we want to make sure we get rid of it. And so the whole concept of what's called maximum tolerated dose chemotherapy, we sometimes abbreviate that MTD for maximum tolerated dose. That's what came about. And interestingly, as more and more chemo drugs were developed, the whole concept of of MTD chemotherapy remained. And so that's what you see today. If you go into any conventional oncology office, they're going to dose the patient uh, using a maximum tolerated dose approach. And that's basically taking the patient's height, the patient's weight, um, and then establish dosing guidelines for that particular chemo agent. And that's what the patient gets. And they know, they know they can only give it once every two or three weeks. Typically, sometimes some can be given once a week, but typically there's a two or three week break from one dose to the next because the patient couldn't safely tolerate more than that. And now when we talk about maximum tolerated dose, we're not just saying the patient won't have side effects. Obviously they will. It's, it's more like how much can we give the patient not to put them in the hospital? 
um, with, with some degree of certainty. So, you know, we know that we're still probably going to wipe out their immune system. We're going to probably cause some anemia, maybe affect their kidneys or their liver. Uh, obviously that can cause a lot of side effects, whether it's nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, you know, rashes, whatever it may be. So that is what we also say with chemotherapy, especially if we've had a relative maybe go through that, or, or maybe some of our listeners are going through that themselves. Um, and I'm, I'm, that makes me sad because to me, chemotherapy is just a tool. And, and I would argue that we've been using it the wrong way all these years. If you think about uh, maximum tolerated dose, I would rather um, think about it in terms of minimum effective dose. So what's the least we can use to still get the effect we want? And chemo is just like any other tool, Robert. It's, it, or is it in, being used by, in the right hands by the right person? Um, and is it being used responsibly? It's like a car. You can get behind the wheel mm-hmm. of a car. You can go 200 miles an hour and you can cause a fatality. Mm-hmm. Um, and if everyone did that, we would probably say that cars are dangerous. But because we know how to use cars and, and how to drive them safely, um, they still get us where we need to go. But they're generally recognized as safe. Um, we can use a lot of examples to illustrate that. But I think chemo is just so effective. I know it is. We just need to use it better. And so what, what I really have found to work in my practice is, is called um, fractionated metronomic chemotherapy. And that's basically a, a, a long way of saying that we're, we're using lower doses of chemo and we're giving it more often. And there's good research to support this. There's uh, research showing that these lower doses given more often um, work really well because it actually keeps a nice steady level of chemotherapy in the body all the time. And that may sound scary to some people. But from a cancer treatment perspective, that's a good thing because the problem we run into with these big doses that are given with a big gap in therapy is there's a long period of time where that chemotherapy is not in the blood at all. And that gives the cancer cells that are that are still there a wonderful opportunity to mutate so that, that treatment doesn't affect them later. Mm-hmm. And so we have this concept of resistance that we talk about a lot, cancer cell resistance. And that really breeds resistance when we're given that big dose of chemo and then we have to wait all that time to give another dose. So with, with the lower dosing more often, so instead of giving one dose every two or three weeks, we're giving these small doses, you know, three times a week, for example. Um, it keeps a nice steady level so that that cancer doesn't have a chance to adapt. Um, so we should get a more longevity out of that treatment. Um, but with the lower dosing, we're avoiding a lot of those side effects that patients associate with chemo. So it's not to say you can't have any side effects because everybody's different, but the risk of the hair loss, nausea, vomiting, fatigue, all those horrible chemo symptoms, the risk of that is just so much lower. Um, so I found it to work really well. And it, and it, that's why I view chemotherapy as a really powerful tool to the point that if someone's recommended to have chemotherapy and they don't do it, they're really missing a huge opportunity to treat their cancer better. Um, so I want everyone to know that, that, that if you're supposed to have chemo and you're choosing not to, that you're making it a lot harder on yourself if you don't do it. Okay. When you talk about these fractionated doses that are lower, earlier you mentioned the maximum tolerated dose mm-hmm. based on height, weight. Mm-hmm. So is a fractionated dose also based upon height and weight in a percentage or what does that look like? It is. Great question. So so we still take that that maximum tolerated dose calculation, but then we take a percentage of that. So if we call the maximum tolerated dose 100%, then we usually give about 10 to 15% of that, sometimes 20%. So we're much lower dose than the normal. Um, but the way that's metabolized by the body, it, I think it worked really well. And so they're getting that two to three times a week. Mm-hmm. We typically do three, yeah. Okay. For how many weeks? We typically do it in a four-week block. So over that four weeks, they're going to get 
you know, about 12 treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we found that it's important to take a break at that point. We've, we've played with various lengths of treatment. We've tried six weeks, we've tried three weeks, and we found that the four week amount of time is really a good amount of time. If you go beyond that, um, you can start to, to see it wear on the patient a little bit more. Okay. So we take a break and we typically will put the patient on, um, on some, some kind of oral chemotherapy, usually a low dose mm-hmm. for about a four week period. And then we'll come back and do more another four weeks of, of the IV chemotherapy. So we, in the context of my, my office, we do a 12 week treatment program, uh, four weeks in the office with IV chemo, uh, four weeks at home with an oral chemo, and then four weeks back in the office with an IV chemo again, along with a lot of other therapies, obviously. Sure. So about a three month commitment for on the part of the, of the cancer patient themselves. Mm-hmm. So, yep. but really a, a small a small commitment of time when you think about the health crisis, right? Right. The, the exactly. picture that we're in here. As far as those those uh, fractionated doses over a period of four weeks and the accumulation, the, the fact that it's staying in the body, mm-hmm. is this accumulating to what full dosages would look like over a period of time? Or is it just, is, I, I'm not, I know nothing about biology the way you do. So what is happening in the human body during this time? Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of patients do like to say, okay, well, how many of these small doses will equal a full dose? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, that's an understandable question. But, but really the way these drugs are metabolized and broken down in the body, it's not exactly the same because we also have metabolites of these drugs that are doing some work for us as well. So if you look at the what's called the half-life of a lot of these medications, many of them are hours or, or a day or so, a day or two. So so a lot of that drug is actually going to be metabolized out even a couple of days later for most of these chemo agents. So that's why we feel like it's safe to go ahead and give uh, another dose again. So it's a little bit different because the body is metabolizing that and there's a lower level and then we hit it again. So it's not exactly the same as saying, you know, 10 doses at 10% of the full dose is the same as one full dose. It's not I think about it differently than that. Okay. You just mentioned a word half-life. For those that have never heard that, explain yes. it to us. So half-life is is the, the amount of time it takes for half of an active component of a, a medication to be broken down in the body. So the we primarily think of the liver doing that. The kidneys are, are involved in, in the metabolism of some drugs as well. But basically, if you start with 100 milligrams, uh, if the half-life is four hours, then after four hours, you'd have 50 milligrams left. And okay. then, you know, of course, that same period of time, half-life, you'd, you'd half it again. So so it's different for different medications. And all, the nice thing about these these drugs is they've all been studied in detail to know exactly how they're going to work in the body. We know what to expect in terms of not only how they work, but how long they work. When, when patients hear chemotherapy, mm-hmm. um, some, not all, but some think to themselves, it's all the same. Mm-hmm. But how many actual chemotherapy agents exist in the world today? I mean, is there is there over a hundred of these things that exist? Yeah, there there are a lot. I mean, there's there's certainly dozens. Um, there probably are over a hundred total. Um, there, there are a lot. So um, they all work a little bit differently. So that's the other thing you know, people need to realize is you know chemotherapy typically works on the nucleus of a cancer. That's where the DNA and the RNA, all those important genetic components are. So chemo works on those. Um, but there's different areas of that DNA or RNA that are being targeted by the chemo. And so, so that's why we usually like to use two or three different chemo agents at the same time to attack that cancer cell differently. So, um, they all work a little bit differently. Um, and and, and some chemos are even derived from plants. I like to tell patients that they think uh, all chemo is just made in some lab by, by some evil drug company. Well, a lot of them did are derived from plant active ingredients are obviously purified, Mm -hmm. uh, in, in concentrated in the lab, but, um, but, but they are kind of plant-based in a way. Okay. Got it. So when you do these fractionated doses, you're using two to three chemos 
within the same infusion? Mm-hmm. At the, okay, the wow. same treatment time. Yep. And and these three combined are equating to the ten to fifteen percent of the full dose. So or? they're each ten to fifteen percent of a full dose for that agent. Okay. So so chemo A, ten to fifteen percent of the full dose for that. Chemo B, ten to fifteen percent. Chemo C, 10, 15%. So they're all okay. 10, 15% of the full dose given one after the other at the same treatment session. Okay. Three so times they're, a week so they're not all in the same bag. They're sem- No, they're, okay. they're pushed separately. Okay. Um, depending on the chemo, sometimes they can be given through an IV you know, push and then mm-hmm. other times they have to be dripped in, but um, they're given sequentially. Okay. That's good to know. Mm-hmm. Now, with all these chemotherapy agents that exist in, in conventional oncology, mm-hmm. Are there like go-to chemotherapies for certain cancers? In other words, if you have breast, this is the go-to chemotherapy mm-hmm. we want. If you have pancreatic cancer, this is the go. Right. Does that exist like that? It does, okay. and and we rely heavily on that because the the re- we let the research guide us. If, if we have three or four chemos that we know are sort of the first line, um, most the most studied seem to be the best effective for a certain cancer. Then that's that's typically what we start with, okay. um, and we found that to work well very well with our methods as well. So we do rely on the research in that way. There are some some various tests that can be done to to maybe help clarify that, but we found that those are usually aren't needed. Usually we can go with what the research shows. Okay. Great. Now, I know with these chemotherapy agents, there's material safety data sheets for these, right? That that tells you about their side effects, et cetera. But those would be based upon full dosage, correct? Correct. Okay. Correct. So that's that's assuming a full dose. Um, so so a lot of times when I talk to patients about my chemotherapy recommendation, um, they they go online and they start reading about it and they say, Doctor Segal, there's 50 side effects I could be getting from this. I'm not sure I want to do this. And mm-hmm. I tell them that you know there's certainly they're there for a reason, but that typically that's associated with a full dose and mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily apply with a lower dose. Right. And obviously there aren't paid studies to demonstrate what a low dose side effect was. Correct. That, okay. Correct. Unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Now talk to us a little bit about how you deliver this fractionated mm-hmm. dose, because that's different. You know, we just discussed lower dosages, but mm-hmm. how is it getting delivered at Center for Advanced Medicine? Right. Good question. So, so one of the issues with chemotherapy is that it only, uh, it only targets what we call actively dividing cancer cells. So if you can mm-hmm. imagine, within a tumor, it's pretty chaotic. Uh, all the, the various cancers, let's say there's a million cancer cells in, in that tumor, um, which sounds like a lot, but it's actually not. I mean, there can be many millions of cancer cells within a tumor. Um, some are going to be growing and dividing, which is what cancer likes to do. It likes to grow and divide so that it can, can continue to spread. Um, but some of those cells are going to be dormant. They're not going to be growing or dividing. They're going to be basically asleep. And these cells can go in and out of growth and division and dormancy um, all day. I mean, it, it just depends on when you give that chemo, you're going to target the ones that are growing and dividing, but if they're not dividing, then you're not going to hurt them. And so that's one of the real problems with conventional cancer treatment is, you know, let's say you're given that big full dose once every two weeks. Well, you're probably going to kill the cells that are dividing, but what about the ones that weren't? And then you're, mm. now you're going to have to wait two more weeks before you can try again and just hope that some of those other cells are vulnerable. Mm. So one of the things that we do is is really try to have as many actively dividing and therefore vulnerable cancer cells at the time of chemotherapy. So it's under our control, our supervision, but we want that because that's that's going to make our dose go farther if we can have 
more vulnerable cancer cells at the time. So, so the first thing we actually do is we have patients fast before chemotherapy. That's really important. So um, studies have shown that a fast leading up to chemotherapy helps it work better. It also re- reduces side effects. And so that was shown in conventional literature and conventional oncology. So, mm. so we apply that to our, our method as well. We usually have patients stop eating eight or nine o'clock the night before treatment. Mm-hmm. So they come in in the morning, they've been fasting for about 12 hours usually, mm-hmm. give or take. That's going to help prime the environment. And if you think about it, you know, cancer is so energy driven. It has a significant uh, increase in the glucose or sugar receptors on its surface. Uh, they have a, a lot more of a need for insulin because they're they're so active. They're growing so much faster than a normal healthy cell would. And so we take advantage of that. And so we, we use something called insulin potentiation therapies, another abbreviated IPT. And what that entails is we actually give insulin, and, and, and I'm sure everyone knows that insulin is a, is a diabetes drug. It's designed to lower blood sugar. <laughs> but we actually give insulin to activate as many of those dormant cancer cells at the time of treatment as possible. So we have a, a much greater population of vulnerable cancer cells. And so um, what that looks like is we actually have the patient come in fasting. We, um, we give them uh, IV dextrose, IV sugar. We raise their blood sugar, and we then give insulin to lower that blood sugar back toward normal. And we found that that works really well. Um, We used to actually uh, do it the opposite. We used to lower the blood sugar first, um, lower them down below normal, uh, which, which wasn't very comfortable for some patients. And then we'd give some sugar to raise it back to normal. But we found that if we raise the blood sugar first, we can actually give more insulin because insulin's the driver of this whole thing. Um, the sugar helps sort of buffer the insulin to make sure the blood sugar is behaving like we want it to. But the, the <coughs> insulin um, is really what we feel is is driving this process to, to sort of activate those cancer cells at the time of treatment. So um, we do that. And, and, and really the patient doesn't really feel anything. I mean, there's not going to be lightheadedness or chills or any of that like you'd see with low blood sugar. When a mm-hmm. patient has a high blood sugar, it's, it's like you just had a, a nice big meal, right? It's, it's, mm-hmm. You're not going to feel badly. Um, and so we found it to be very safe. Again, we're checking blood sugar regularly. So we're, even though we're manipulating the blood sugar mm-hmm. a little bit, we're, we're very careful to make sure that it's falling within the parameters that, that we are, are looking for. So, and that's it. And then and the chemos go in during that time while we're, um, while we're de- delivering the, the, the insulin and the, and the dextrose once, once they've taken effect. And so, um, it's a really easy, well-tolerated procedure. That's Got how it. we give chemo. And we do that every time we give chemo. So, so Monday, Wednesday, Friday in my practice, that's how we do it. IPT with chemo. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you for that explanation. So Dr. Stegall, when it comes to giving the patient insulin, I want to make sure I heard this correctly. One of the key purposes is that there's dormant cancer cells that are not dividing. Right. All right. So you give the insulin to make these dormant cells wake up as it were. Mm-hmm. Are they dividing at this time? Is that the theory? Yes. That they're, that they're growing in, in, in preparation or actively dividing when we give chemo. Oh. That makes them vulnerable. Okay. So then when you deliver the glucose, which mm-hmm. follows next. Mm-hmm which they're hungry for. Exactly. Right. It's kind of like Pac-Man. Right. <laughs> they're coming right. in to, to consume it. Then you follow it up with the fractionated mm-hmm. chemotherapy. Correct. So they're consuming that. Those The idea is in theory that those fast dividing cells are all, there's more of them now because mm-hmm. they were dormant right. and they're consuming that chemotherapy and they're you're killing cancer cells at that point. Bingo. Okay. And minimizing the side effects at the same time. Right. All right. It's fantastic. It's good news. 
what are you integrating with uh, IPT to make it work better? Because obviously there's other things that you're doing. You, you mentioned it earlier. You're an integrative oncologist. Right. What have you found to be very uh, successful? Mm-hmm. Well, we found that that hyperthermia, which is heat, um, applied to a specific area. So we call that local hyperthermia versus a global hyperthermia would be basically heating the patient, giving them a fever. And we don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. But local hyperthermia, we're able to place a, a, a pad, especially designed hyperthermia pad over a certain area is important because that is going to do a few things. Um, number one, it's heat kills cancer. So, so cancer doesn't withstand heat as well as a normal healthy cell would. And so we know that there's going to be a, a cancer cell killing effect from the heat. It's going to recruit some immune cells to the area being heated. But, but probably most importantly, um, heat is going to bring a little bit extra blood flow to an area. So if you can imagine the timing, we're giving chemotherapy, there's blood in the chemotherapy, it's going to circulate around, let's divert a little bit of that blood to the area of greatest concern for the patient. If they have a breast mass, we'll put the the, the hyperthermia device over their breast and bring a little bit more chemotherapy rich blood to that area. Or if it's over the liver, we're going to put some heat over that area. And we found that to work well um, because obviously the, the chemo is still going to be systemic and we want it to be right because we, who knows where cancer cells might be. Um, but we know if, if there's a certain area to prioritize that the hyperthermia is going to help us do that. Um, and, and the nice thing about, you know, this, this device is it's not going to burn the skin. A lot of the older hyperthermia devices would actually burn the skin because most of the heat is there mm-hmm. versus this actually causes the heat to, co- to collect under the skin to a certain extent. So we're able to heat an area below the surface and, and really spare the skin from, from the burns. So we found that to work really well uh, to integrate with, with chemo and IPT. And the local hyperthermia is being done prior to the fractionated chemotherapy through IPT. Yes, we we apply the heat, uh, let that get to a certain temperature, and then that's when we start our chemo, when we know that there's already the the heat in that area. Got it. So as I'm putting this together, and correct me if I'm wrong, when I think about the IPT and you give insulin to the patient uh, to wake up those dormant cells, as it were, you're really creating like a magnet in the body to receive the chemo. But by applying the local hyperthermia beforehand, now you're making it a super magnet where the tumor is. Right. Exactly. If it's more concentrated to a tumor as well as more likely to be taken up by cancer cells, um, that's going to be less chemo that can go to places we don't want it to go. Right. So we think about collateral damage. Not only are we addressing that with a lower dose, Mm -hmm. but if we're targeting the chemo better, the chances of a lot of these other untoward side effects is going to be a lot lower. I'm sure there was a time where you were not using local hyperthermia in the practice, but you were using IPT, fractionated doses. So from the time that you weren't doing this to the time that you are now, you're actually doing, what was the difference that you noticed with the patients? I definitely noticed an improvement in the the reduction of of tumors. Um, I mean, I certainly got good results before, but but I do feel like it's it's increased the results. Especially, you know, the really neat thing is is seeing patients that have um, tumors that are visible. So some patients will come to us; they'll have a breast mass that's come through the skin that's mm. exposed or or uh, something like that, and, and you really can literally watch those get smaller over the course of, of weeks of treatment. And so it's pretty cool to see. And obviously we monitor uh, labs and imaging as well. So if, if it's an internal tumor, we still are going to see that too. But it's neat to see that as we go along to actually see the effect um, of the treatment. And I have seen an increase uh, in those benefits um, just since we included the hyperthermia. Fantastic. Is, 
with the insulin, and, and I know I'm, I'm going back here just for a minute, but it just dawned on me, is there any risk of insulin causing the cancer to spread because those dormant cells are not coming to life? In other words, is it possible through the insulin that over a period of maybe four weeks or eight weeks later that there could be more cancer cells that are dividing and spreading? Is there a risk of that at all? Or? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so we don't have any research showing that that accelerates the growth of and spread of cancer. Now, uh, I view it more as, you know, any, any time, if you have cancer, anytime you eat, potentially you're going to fuel cancer, right? That's just the reality of it because cancer is relying <clears throat> on those same nutrients and other things that normal healthy cells are. Um, so we know that anytime we give any sort of fuel, it, it could cause cancer to grow, but because we're doing it under our supervision at the time of treatment, um, I don't have any concerns about that. Now, now, now you, we do know from the research that the diabetics get more cancer and they have worse outcomes from cancer than people who don't have diabetes. So okay. part of that is because they don't have as good a blood sugar control. And part of that is quite possibly because of insulin. Um, but because we're doing it in controlled, in a controlled setting, um, limited times, and we're talking about giving of the course of a three, three month treatment program, it's, um, it's, it's 23 chemotherapies that we give. Um, okay. IV chemos. And so it's 23 times you're getting insulin. That's, that's not significant at all. Whereas if we were, you know, obviously giving it every day for 10 years, maybe that could cause some issues, but because it's under our, our control at the time of treatment, we know we're giving chemotherapy. I have no concerns about that. Okay. And there's a really targeted approach that you're describing. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, um, you mentioned earlier in conventional medicine, was that there are dormant, these dormant cells, these dormant cancer cells, and ke the chemotherapy will develop a resistance. And so I'm thinking to myself, I think we've all met a cancer patient that had conventional chemotherapy, and maybe even integrative, uh, I don't know, but that has come out and said, I'm cancer free. Only to have the cancer reappear in three months or six months or 12 months. They obviously, it's great to hear those words, you're cancer free. Right. However, that was determined. But if, if there's dormant cells, I mean, should we be telling patients this? Mm -hmm. I mean, or when should we tell patients they're cancer free? What? What's your opinion on this? Yeah, I agree. We we throw around cancer free cure. We throw around those words a lot. I actually don't use them in my practice. I I will say that there is no evidence of disease, no evidence of cancer, but I can't guarantee that there's not a cancer cell in there somewhere. Um, even with the advanced testing that that we incorporate, um, it, it it's great when that test doesn't show any evidence of cancer, but but that doesn't mean there couldn't be something there that could pop up later. And that's why the monitoring is so important. How often should people monitor themselves and, and monitor, monitor themselves with what test? So patients who have cancer, you know, I'm really big on, on getting your information. I always say, if we don't know our enemy, we can't fight it well. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, cancer is a, is a formidable adversary, right? I mean, we know it, mm -hmm. it can, it can take over the body if we let it. And so, you know, on a very basic level, you know, this may be common sense to our listeners, but, but get a biopsy. If you think you might have cancer, get the biopsy. There's all kinds of stuff on the internet about, you know, biopsies spread cancer and they're dangerous and they don't. Okay. So get your biopsy. You need to know first of all, whether it's cancer or not, but then also that's going to give us some extra information on that tumor. If it is cancer, 
let's say it's breast cancer. Well, is estrogen driving that cancer or not? Is progesterone driving that cancer? Um, we can do all kinds of studies now on that tumor to tissue to actually see um, how it's behaving and whether that gives us different treatment options. Um, but then beyond that, you know, I, I do use the conventional tumor markers, you know, the things like the CA125 or uh, CA153 or, or PSA, things like that. I think they're important to monitor as you have, as you go through cancer, just to see how those respond. I don't think they're perfect. Um, those are just proteins that we measure and, and they can be elevated for other reasons as well. Um, so I, I do think imaging plays an important role. No one wants to be exposed to radiation, but you know, a PET CT scan is kind of the gold standard. So I do think that's important to get a, a PET scan or even just a CT or MRI, just to, depending on the cancer type, you know, we decide what's appropriate, but, but a picture is worth a thousand words and, and a lab test won't necessarily show you everything you need to know. And so I think imaging at regular intervals is important. And then I'm also using a, a test right now called Signatera that I really like a lot. It actually takes um, a, a sample of the patient's um, tumor tissue, and that can be previously obtained from biopsy or, or surgery. Um, and the pathologist at Signatera will come up with what they call a genetic signature, and it's unique to that patient and their cancer. It's, it's about 16 unique what they call molecular identifiers that they found um, are not only unique to that patient, but they don't change over time. They don't change as a result of treatment. So that's sort of their genetic signature forever for that cancer. And they can get a blood sample from the patient and actually look for that pattern and, and measure what's known as circulating tumor DNA. And you may see that abbreviated CTDNA, but you can think of that as basically fragments of cancer DNA. So we're able to actually take a blood sample look not just for cancer cells, but little pieces of cancer DNA from inside cells. And I found that to be really helpful in addition to the other testing we talked about, because if you're negative on Signatera, 0.00, no evidence of cancer, and you show over time that you remain at 0.00, your chance of recurrence is extremely low. So that gives our patients a lot of confidence, not only that treatment's working and that they're maintaining that no evidence of disease status, but that once they reach a certain point that that their chance of, of that cancer coming back is very low. Signatera was the Signatera, name of it. Yep. And I want to make, because this was so valuable, what you just mentioned, they're looking at the tissue biopsy mm -hmm. in the lab. Yep. Is this, are they seeing this tissue within 12 hours, 24 hours that it's been taken out? How soon is this? It can be years old. It can be really? okay. three, four, five years old tissue that's been preserved because a pathology lab is required to preserve tissue for mm -hmm. up to 10 years. So the pathology lab will have it. Mm -hmm. Pathology lab has it. And so it's just a matter of <clears throat> getting that sent to Signatera there in California. So most, you know, U.S. based um, mm -hmm. hospitals can send it no problem. And then they do, they, they spend about three weeks or so working on that pattern. And then the, the blood testing part takes about a week. So the nice thing is, even though that first result takes about a month to, to come back, um, subsequent testing only requires a blood sample and it takes about a week to come back. So it's a really nice way. We use that to monitor our treatments, uh, as we go, but then also after treatment to make sure the patient keeps doing well. And you mentioned the zero, zero, zeros, mm -hmm. right? For no evidence of disease. Right. For the period of time that you've been working with this this lab, mm -hmm. do you feel a level of greater confidence with those results versus an image? Or would you recommend both? I recommend both, but I have found that we can uh, usually extend, uh, for some patients at least, extend the amount of time between scans if Signatera remains good. Because the, the key thing is, you know, on an image something needs to be about one millimeters or larger to show up. And one millimeter, a one millimeter 
lesion is about a million cells. So if you can imagine, that's a lot of cells mm-hmm. in order to, to be detectable on a, on a PET scan or a CT. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Signatera measuring just fragments of cancer cell DNA, it's a much, much smaller entity. So so I'm very careful to say we don't need to exclusively rely on Signatera. It's not mm-hmm. designed to be a standalone, but, but to supplement imaging, um, I think it's a really good strategy because we're going to capture... Uh, a lot if we combine Signatera with imaging with regular lab testing as well. So if you're doing the Signatera, mm-hmm. let's a patient that's already gone through the Center for Advanced Medicine. Right? Okay. Get a Signatera test every six months, every three months. Good question. So we get we get a, a test at baseline, mm-hmm. and then we actually will test again uh, after uh, about a month of treatment. So so mm-hmm. in the context of our twelve week treatment program, about week six when they're they're home for those that break in the middle, we'll do another Signatera. And the nice thing is we'll have both the baseline and that that roughly six weeks Signatera back before they come back for their last four weeks of treatment. So if we need to tweak anything, we can. Mm -hmm. I mean, we typically see that number come down, meaning Mm -hmm. the cancer load is less. Mm -hmm. But if we need to tweak something, we can. And then we'll actually check another one uh, about two weeks after they finish the 12 weeks of treatment. And then beyond that, it really depends on what we see. If if the Signatera is positive, meaning it's showing some cancer activity there, then we typically will do it monthly. And if it's uh, if it's negative, meaning zero point zero zero no evidence of cancer, then we do it every three months. Okay. And then as far as the imaging, let's say a PET CT, once every six months, once every year, or in comp, what? Yeah, it depends on the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, typically, we'll get an imaging before we start treatment, and then again about two weeks after we finish. So that'll be a three months in between those because that's measuring treatment. Um, after that, um, no more often than every three months, but most often I'll wait six months for a lot of patients moving forward to do the image. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and sometimes a year, it just depends on the patient. mm -hmm. And I know this is such an important topic for patients because they're like, they want to make sure that, well, there's no evidence of disease, right? I'm not going to use the word cure or, uh, you're cancer free. Um, however, if the patient wants to do the Sigma, Sigma, Signatera, Signatera test more frequently, Mm -hmm because they just want to, and they're willing to pay for it. Sure. Are you willing to support them? Sure. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. And so for how long, and maybe we have to go out years, I don't know if this is two years, five years, for how long of a period of a time do they need to see those negative 0.00 to really be in that spot where you, th- where you think as a, as, as a professional, as an integrative oncologist where you're like, you're, you're Okay. <laughs> Yeah, Signatera's research has has really uh, put put a lot of weight on that two year mark. So, so two years of consistently negative Signatera results. So zero point zero zero every three months mm-hmm. up to that two year mark. The risk of recurrence is extremely low in their research. So it's not to say we don't need to still monitor mm-hmm. it after mm-hmm. that because mm-hmm. we do. Mm-hmm. But um, I would say we would do it less frequently. Maybe go to every six months at that point, or every, uh, or just know that even if we are sticking with three months, that that the chances of recurrence are low. What I'm hearing you say is you have a very uh, systematic approach when it comes to measuring uh, the response when the patients come to you. Right. This is so important. It is. Um, what about the whole idea that somebody's cancer can be completely resolved in a period of two or four weeks going to some integrative or alternative facility? I mean, what are the chances of this? I mean, outside of a true miracle, right? But I'm not talking about a true miracle from God. I'm just, I'm just, I'm talking about medicine. I mean, what are the chances of this even happening? Right. Thank you for asking that. You know, cancer by all estimations takes a long time to develop. I mean, just because someone has identified a tumor 
it, it didn't just pop up right then. It, it, it took years to develop. And so the, the notion that you can get rid of it in just a few weeks is ludicrous. Um, so, you know, that's exactly why we have a 12 week program and it's not a guarantee that your cancer will be gone in 12 weeks. We have had patients that, that had that even stage four, but I'm not going to promise that people, you know, I mean, you, you have to just understand that, that that's a starting point and you may need more treatment than that. Mm -hmm. And we know that because we monitor patients really closely. And so everyone's different. I haven't treated you. So mm -hmm. you, know, you may need more than that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm confident you don't need less than that. There's just no way if you've never treated your cancer with any legitimate treatments that you can just get rid of it in three or four weeks. There's mm -hmm. no way. Mm -hmm. This is a long distance marathon for the patient. It is. Okay. It is because we have a lot. If, if a patient's coming to us with a with a tumor, we have a lot of work to do. Whether it's whether it's a stage one or a stage four, there's there's a lot going on to get to that point that we need to address. Okay, fantastic. It's good to know. Uh, very valuable uh, insights that you're giving us here, Doctor Stegall. In your book, Cancer Secrets, mm -hmm. there was something I read. You talk about the the grim reality when it comes to conventional chemotherapy. Mm -hmm that there's no studies being done on fractionated chemo. Um, and let's face it, if there were, and it was found to be more advantageous to do fractionated doses mm -hmm. of chemotherapy, the pharmaceutical companies would end up losing a great deal of money in sure. that process. Is that is that correct? It is. I mean, there's, there's really no incentive to pay for those studies, right? I mean, especially since most of these chemo drugs are off patent. A lot of them are, so they're generic on, on some level. And so, um, you know, the, the money is going into new drugs, right? They can be patented. They can be, they cost a whole bunch of money that someone has to pay for, typically insurance companies. Um, so, yeah, there's really no financial incentive to, to do research on lower doses of chemo. However, um, since I wrote my book, and actually I want to mention the second edition of Cancer Secrets is coming out here in the next couple of weeks. Fantastic. But one of the things I updated in there is some new research on, um, low dose chemotherapy versus full dose. And it's, it's really fascinating The a group, uh, again, it wasn't a drug company that did this study. It was just a group of, um, of, of just, just cancer doctors that decided we wanted to study lower doses of chemo. So they looked at advanced cancer. So they looked at, um, stage four lung cancer, uh, stage four colon cancer, stage four ovarian cancer, and any stage um, pancreatic cancer. So these are all advanced aggressive mm -hmm. cancers, right? They took they they put these patients into two pretty much identical groups. They made sure that the patients were very similar in terms of their average age, gender, um, you know, extent of cancer, all that. So they gave one group full dose chemo. They gave another group low dose chemo, which they which they defined as fifty percent or less of the full dose. And they not only followed these patients for a few weeks or a few months, they followed them for 10 years. And what they found is, first of all, no one in the full-dose chemo group lived 10 years. And only one person in the full-dose chemo group lived five years. But they had multiple people in the low-dose chemo group that lived 10 years. And so they found that the average um, survival was higher for all cancer types with uh, full-dose, I mean, with low-dose chemo compared to full-dose. So the, the low-dose chemo patients live longer than the um, full dose did, um, significantly so with some of the cancer types they looked at. And as you would expect, the side effect risk was lower as well, the side effects. So they, they, they live longer and they had fewer side effects. That sounds like a great deal, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. so my hope is that with this research, which, uh, 
which has not been published, but it has been released. So I, I don't know if it's been published as of now. It had not been a couple of weeks ago, but um, but it's legitimate research. It's uh, it's out there, um, and I'm excited about it because this this hopefully will 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 encourage others to do similar research. Right? We need this absolutely, and and I'm excited because I see this in my practice all the time. I mean, I see it all mm-hmm. the time, um, but everyone says, "Well, where's the data? Where's the data?" Um, well, here's some data. Mm-hmm. So, so it's very exciting and it, it, it reinforces everything I believe to be true. This is very interesting because um, obviously the pharmaceutical companies are not going to fund these studies, mm-hmm. but this was a group of doctors that did this on their own. Yep. And this is really what it appears it's going to take in the future. Are doctors like yourself yep. that are really willing to put their money where their mouth is, mm-hmm. where they were, they will make the financial investment to find out, Hey, is, is this integrative stuff working? Is this different right. way? This, this right. other way of doing this, will it work? Right. So this is exciting. And you're, you're talking about this in your next book that's coming out. Yes. The second okay. edition of cancer secrets, which will be out in the next few weeks that that's in there as well. What's um, the title of the next book? Cancer secrets, second edition. Okay. So it's the same, <laughs> okay. same title everyone is familiar right. with, but, um, and, and just to remind everyone, you know, that was with low dose chemo that didn't even include IPT. That didn't include wow. fasting. That wow. didn't include getting your diet right. It didn't include taking the right supplements. It didn't include all these other things that I think are also oh. very valuable. That was simply looking at chemo, Full dose versus a lower dose. Wow. So, yeah. That's super encouraging because right. we right. know that all these other mm-hmm. <laughs> tools right. that you're going to you're gonna use uh, are going to help the patient. That is fantastic. Now, give us the name of your website where people can go to your podcast and get all kinds of frequently asked questions answered. Sure. So, so the best place to go is cancersecrets.com. Uh, you can find information about my podcast. You can listen to all the previous episodes on there um, as information about, um, about my book. Um, and then also I recently released a, a cancer course, an online course that they can find out about on that site as well. That's uh, it's called Cancer Secrets University, but uh, it's basically a, a, a lot of video modules of me teaching on various topics. What is cancer? How do you get cancer? Uh, going through all the different therapies, conventional and natural therapies, what the research is on these, what I recommend to my patients in my practice. So I think uh, that's something people will really benefit from. It's fantastic. That is absolutely fantastic. So exciting, Dr. Stegall. Well, listen, everyone, I hope you notice that Dr. Jonathan Stegall is one of the leading up-and-coming integrative oncologists in the United States. He's not afraid to tackle a subject. He's not afraid to answer the difficult questions. And I I could spend another three hours with him in this room, but unfortunately, Dr. Stegall has patients that he's committed to. But I highly recommend that you go to his website, tcfam.com. Once again, that's the letter tcfam.com. And find out about getting a consultation with Dr. Stegall that's not going to be an eight-minute consultation. It's going to be an hour or 90 minutes or who knows how long it's going to be. But you're going to receive the personal touch that you deserve when it comes to a cancer diagnosis. Dr. Stegall, I want to thank you for coming in here today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it. All right. Do this again soon, okay? Yes. Keep up the good work, all right? Thank you. Thanks for having me. God bless you. God bless you.